Hello, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. My guest today is the Reverend Dr. May Elise Cannon, who is an ordained pastor of the Evangelical Covenant Church and is the Executive Director of Churches for Middle East Peace, based in Washington, D.C. Dr. Cannon is the author of numerous books, and she has one coming out at the end of this month entitled Beyond Hashtag Activism. But today, I want to focus on her first book, which is Social Justice Handbook, Small Steps for a Better World. Most of us who want to be caring and loving people want somehow to be involved in making the world better. And in order to do that, we want to be involved, especially in making the world more just and fair. The demands of life, however, absorb our time and hinder our efforts, and we don't always know how to become involved. And so that's why I want you to know about this resource. It's a wonderful resource, even though it's a decade old now. It's a great way for you to begin thinking about how to be involved. Her subtitle, Small Steps for a Better World, give you those processes and those steps to take in order for you to become involved. She, in her second part of the book, gives an encyclopedic list of different social issues, and then she gives you a description of those issues, uh, some first steps in order how to get involved in that issue, each issue, and then some reading that you can do in order to become better informed about that issue. So this resource is a way for you to begin thinking uh, and exploring uh, what are you concerned about uh, what ways are you wanting to be involved in making our world a better place? So in part one, uh, Dr. Cannon discusses the nature of social justice, and that's what we'll focus on primarily today, hoping that as a result of this, you'll be encouraged to get a hold of this resource and to become involved in some way in social justice issues. So welcome, May. Thank you for being with me today. Thank you for having me, David. I'm very pleased to be here. Let's start with letting you tell your own spiritual journey, especially as that has led you uh, into becoming involved in social justice issues. Yes. Well, my spiritual journey actually started before I was born, and the story is quite profound. It's kind of one of those biblical-type stories. Um, I had a brother who was killed when I was two years old. Uh, he was killed in a hit-and-run car accident, and he was actually named after the person who had led my parents to know Jesus. And so my parents were young believers, and they dedicated my brother and I to Christ. And then we had this tragedy in our family. Um, you could say it was an injustice. Uh, it was an example of the world not being the way that God initially intended it to be. And yet I believe that God honored my parents by placing a call on my life. And so from the time I was a little girl, um, my parents, after that uh, terrible accident, stopped going to church um, and, you know, felt very broken and had lots of questions about where is God, you know, in the midst of pain in the world. I think they maintained, uh, um, you know, their faith. And later on, years later, they ended up going back to church. But as a child, I didn't grow up in a church going family. And yet the Holy Spirit uh, drew me to himself. 
And so I would beg whatever neighbor uh, would take me to church that Sunday to go with them. And so one Sunday I would sing in the Episcopal Church Choir, which I can't sing and so should not have been <laughs> doing that. Um, but I, I ultimately came to Christ in a Southern Baptist church through an Alana program. And um, I feel like God honored my decision. And that was kind of the beginning of my spiritual journey, if you will. And then in terms of the social justice side of things, I wouldn't have been able to tell you this until years later, but some of my most significant mentors in terms of leadership and education, but also spirituality, were African-Americans who were either teachers in elementary school or middle school or high school. And so I grew up in rural Southern Maryland, which is very, very very racially divided. And if people think Maryland is not a part of the South because of its proximity to Washington, D.C., I have to say it's south of the Mason-Dixon line. And so growing up in the South um, with these racial divides and having these significant mentors who shared with me about their experiences was kind of the starting point to my journey to understanding racial justice and social justice. Well, and you talked also about, uh, you know, you kind of in your work at Willow Creek, um, so kind of talk about that a little bit about uh, how that kind of led in specifically to your interest in some of the social justice things. Sure. So Willow Creek was the first ministry opportunity I had. I was a seminary student and was hired to be a director in um, a ministry there called Extension Ministries, which focused on domestic work in the U.S. context and national engagement with justice issues, poverty, homelessness. We worked with the prison populations. So I often say I learned to preach in Louisiana State Penitentiary in Angola. And if you want to have honest critics of your preaching ability, preach in prison. <laughs> Many of these inmates, I mean, they know the scriptures inside and out. Many of them have been born again and had transformative relationships with Jesus. And so my ministry in large part was shaped, you know, by that ministry at Willow Creek. And the book that we're talking about, Social Justice Handbook, was what I wish someone had given me when I was doing that work. I wish, um, you know, there were all these questions I had about biblical justice and the prophets of the Hebrew scriptures and Jesus's commandments in the New Testament to respond to the least of these. And what's that mean practically? And, you know, one of the critiques of Social Justice Handbook is that it's not very political. So it doesn't talk a lot about political activism. And my work has grown in that area since then. But the book was really meant to be the questions that the community I was working with at Willow, it's the questions we were all asking. Um, what's it mean to live out what you were talking about in the introduction? What's it mean to live out the gospel in a way that responds to wrongs in the world? When we see injustice, when we see brokenness, when we see extreme poverty, when we see racism, when we see little girls around the world not being able to be educated because of their gender, let alone suffering sexual abuse. Um, when we see these things that are brokenness in the world, how does God call the church to respond? And I think the small steps for a better world is meant to be an encouragement because we can easily become overwhelmed by how much um, that's happening around us that's painful or broken or not yet fully redeemed. And so to be reminded that by God's grace and through the direction of the Holy Spirit, we can take small steps to help usher in the kingdom of God. As we pray the Lord's Prayer, we can actually act out the things that Jesus has called us to as well. Uh, my interview yesterday was with Rabbi Nancy Fuchs-Grimer, 
Um, and she was talking about Tikkun um, Olam, which is a Jewish practice of repairing the world. Um, and it can involve these little small steps uh, that you're talking about. And so I, 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 that's why I'm, I like your, your book and your resources that even if it doesn't get into the politics that you may have been criticized for, uh, it does get you involved uh, and it gets you started. So talk a little bit about your understanding then, consequently, of, of, of social justice, and, and especially maybe as you distinguish that from biblical justice. Yes. So um, justice is as simple as right action or, um, you know, the world being the way that God intended it to be. That I think that's a very simple but true definition of justice. And, um, you know, one might say justice is getting what one deserves. Um, and Social, you know, social just means it has to do with community. It has to do with people. And so often this association, um, particularly in the context of the church, people might hear the term social justice and they say, oh, you're just a liberal activist. Or it's dismissed often in conservative Christian circles because of um, some of the history of the social justice movement. But when we go back just to the pure definition of social justice, it really just means justice within the context of community. And I would assert that community justice is incredibly biblical. So we could do, and we could spend hours and hours and hours, David, just looking at what the scriptures have to say about what justice looked like in the context of community. There are literally books about it in the Old Testament and in the New. And in that regard, biblical justice, I often define as the process of the world becoming the manifestation of the kingdom of God, the way that God intended for it to be. So I point often to Leviticus. Not many people would say Leviticus is their favorite chapter in the scriptures or favorite book in the Bible, but Leviticus chapter 25 talks about the year of Jubilee, and it creates this picture of what it might look like if prisoners are set free and if debts are forgiven and if slaves are freed and when people who are poor, um, you know, not only are their debts debts wiped away, but they're given adequate food and adequate access to resources. So we often talk about one of the significant components of justice is some people have certain privileges that other people groups do not. And so um, social justice, and I would assert biblical justice, is about all people be given um, access to resources um, that are that come from God, that come from God. And so um you know, Leviticus 25 and the year of Jubilee. And if we fast forward, you know, through the prophets of old into the New Testament, Jesus's very first message that he ever gave in a sermon um, is found in Luke chapter four. And it's the verses that talk about the year of the Lord's favor being proclaimed in the person of Christ, which was a direct reference to the year of Jubilee. And Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. I've been anointed to preach. To who? To preach good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the captives, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. That that's the definition of biblical justice. Well, so and and you talk also in like in, in your understanding of social justice about relating to changing causes. Yes. So talk about that a little bit. 
Sure. So this might be a good time um, to reference uh, Kevin Blue and his work. He wrote a book called um, Practical Justice. And I write about this in the Social Justice Handbook. Um, I think it's really important that we understand that social justice is about addressing systemic issues. And as you just said, the causes of issues. So to differentiate between compassion and justice, we are called to be compassionate people, which is showing kindness, showing mercy. Um, I often describe an act of compassion as if you have a neighbor who loses a loved one, you know, fixing them lasagna and seeking to sit alongside of them, that's a compassionate act. Whereas justice is addressing systemic wrongs and systemic issues. So Kevin Blue identifies a threefold progression in response to injustice. Um, and he describes it this way. He says, first, we're called to provide a direct relief when people are hurting. So in other words, if someone's hungry, you would give them a fish. Um, and that's what I was talking about in terms of compassion, responding to the immediate need. The second step is um, fighting injustice by teaching a person to fish or giving them other skills. So if someone's hungry, you don't just give them the fish. You might give them a fishing pole and teaching them how to fish to be able to meet their own needs. But then um, we would be not addressing the systemic wrong of why that person you know, can't support themselves in terms of food if we didn't directly address the system. So say the person's trying to fish in a pond and the pond is polluted, right? And they'd be able to support their family or support themselves by fishing there. Um, the holistic step of justice is being able to address why the pond's polluted and cleaning it up. So that then not only does the person have a fish and have a fishing pole and know how to fish, but that the system, um, you know, ills in the system are then uh, made right or remedied. Well, and you, and you kind of further that discussion a little bit by making a distinction between like direct and indirect justice and direct and indirect injustice. Um, kind of what do you mean by those? Yeah, well, um I'd have to look specifically in terms of um, the written context uh, for more about that. But um, I think that there are certain issues that we're so far removed from, we might not be able to directly respond to them. You know, I might not be living next to the pond. So for me to go and clean the garbage out of it might not be a way that I can respond directly. Um, but I can contribute to organizations that are doing that work or that I can contribute to, you know what, let's be more environmentally friendly in our homes. <laughs> so we're using less water. And so we're using less resources. Um, and I, I think one of the great challenges of the 21st century is we're so far removed from the direct causes and the effects of the way that we live our life. You know, just the clothes on our back, what are they made from? Who made them? Were the people who made them paid living wages? Um, and so that's one of the things that's exciting about movements in the 21st century is um, there's now organizations and groups that are saying, hey, we're going to make our clothes out of sustainable materials and make sure that the people we buy them from are actually treated well in the factories and um, kind of addressing all those different steps in the supply chain, I think is a really critical way to address both directly and indirectly that whole system that we were talking about. Um, so Lark, what do we do then when a system we value uh, may be causing the problems, yeah. uh, kind of like capitalism, uh, as we, yeah. you know, our nation uh, values that freedom, uh, values 
uh, a capitalistic free market as opposed to socialism. Um, and yet, uh, you know, again, there have been uh, deep reflection upon the um, unjust causes that capitalism produces. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. How do we how do we go about addressing that kind of thing in your mind? If we're if we're trying to change causes, uh, yeah. What do, about, what do we do about this? Yeah, that's a great question. And I'm by no means an economist. Um, My husband is in the finance industry, and we have uh, conversations about this all the time. And one of the things that we talk about is um, one of the greatest negative effects of capitalism, and we could talk about a lot of the positive aspects of the system, but one of the negative aspects of capitalism, and in fact, I would argue the most significant problem with it as a system is the way that it creates a growing gap between the rich and the poor. So those who have privilege within the system are able to make more money, and then this gap between those in poverty and those who are wealthy uh, grows and grows uh, disproportionately. And, you know, I think all systems um, in some way, shape or form are broken, um, have uh, aspects of them that could be made better. Um, you know, one of the conversations my husband and I have is, is there an alternative system that would be better? I mean, because we could look at socialism and say socialism has great strengths because there's equality between people. But look at when socialism was practiced and how many people were you know, killed under different regimes that practiced socialism. Um, And so I think in that regard, um, we need to do the best we can to deconstruct uh, specific problems within systems. So capitalism is the current system that we have. And, you know, one might say we should throw it out, you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater. Or you could say, are there Um, ways within the system that we could address the disproportionate uh, separation between the rich and the poor, you know, and I think those are questions for experts in those fields, which again, I'm not one of those experts to wrestle with questions of what would that look like? Um, So one of the organizations that's a nonprofit um, that uh, my organization works closely with addresses this question you were asking, you know, within capitalism, if you have injustices, how do you address them? And what they do is they actually put caps on their salaries. So an executive assistant or anyone at an entry level position, for example, would be hired at a certain rate and executives within the organization can't be hired for an amount that's more than twice that. So they put these limitations within the system to try to address the concern of differentiation between executives and entry-level positions. So that would be one type of way to say, hey, how can we have more just salaries that are more equitable and honor you know, different um, positions and different responsibilities in the workplace, for example? Um, but I think those are great questions, Stephen. Do you know about um, steady state economics? I do not. Um, There was a um, economist um, that joined forces with a theologian uh, to write a book called For the Common Good. Uh, Herman Daly was the economist. Uh, John Cobb was the theologian. Uh, But Herman Daly is kind of the, the father figure of a growing number of economists. Uh, that have uh, developed this approach to the economy called steady-state economics. Um, it, it, it considers both the way we do capitalism now and socialism as growth economies. And in response to both of those, 
it attempts to uh, provide uh, a different perspective, uh, a third option, which they call steady state economics. Um, there's a wonderful book um, uh, by Rob Dietz called Enough is Enough uh, that gives you some really good guidelines on, on the specifics like you were talking about, that uh, ways to modify what we're doing now. I love that. I, I, I love it. And I'll pick up the book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, so uh, you were talking about um, that for each person, um, there's a cluster of dynamics and issues that come to bear on deciding how you want to be involved in social justice and what specifically uh, you want to do in social justice. Um, I think you lift nine components. We don't have to talk about all nine if you want to, but but at the same time, kind of touch on that. Talk about that, uh, what you mean by that a little bit. Yeah, that's actually one of my favorite chapters of the book. Um, the title of it is From Apathy to Advocacy. And, you know, it's funny, at one point, the book that's coming out in May, I wanted to call it From Apathy to Advocacy. And my editor said that I shouldn't call my readers apathetic because it might be viewed as a criticism. <laughs> and I don't mean it as a criticism. I just mean all of us, I think, in some way, shape or form, get overwhelmed by the things we see in the world. And so here's what I believe. And I think the scriptures teach this about vocation and calling that, that there are aspects of the gospel. When we hear the greatest commandment is to love God, you know, and then to love your neighbor, that all of us are called to love our neighbor. But I don't think that that means that all of us are called to be experts on sex trafficking and, and fighting against, you know, certain specific issues. And so one of the first things we need to do is prayerfully discern what is it that God has uniquely called each of us to do. And so there's a vocational question, you know, when we're asking the question of what does it mean to be an advocate of social justice, I think there's a vocational question we need to ask of what has God uniquely called each individual, but each community. I think different churches are called to engage in different parts of the world and address different issues in their own backyard. So I think that's really important to understand, you know, as this book, Social Justice Handbook, addresses 147 justice issues, should all of us be trying to do everything we can for all 147? I'm not sure. I actually think there's unique calling on each of our lives. Um, and in terms of the nine steps, I mean, the things that I talk about are prayer and the power of prayer in dismantling, you know, spiritual systems, the process of awareness of being educated about certain issues. And I think it's really important we not get stuck in awareness because we could spend the next decades trying to learn about issues and not actually working, you know, to make a difference in response to them. Um, I talk about lament. I mean, you mentioned what do we do when the systems that are causing problems are systems that we believe in or systems we're invested in. And um, in that regard, one of the nine phases and components of apathy to advocacy is sacrifice. Sometimes it means giving up power or giving up privilege or giving up money or um, sharing platforms. And so I think it's important for us to understand as we enter into a transformational discipleship journey. And as we seek to be advocates of justice, we are going to be called to give things up. Um, Jesus said, pick up your cross, you know, take up your cross and follow me. And so I think that's 
you know, exemplified in the scriptures and certainly is a part of what practical advocacy looks like in the world. So how do we, like when our Christian values kind of chafe against um, our national values, Mm -hmm. um, not so much in terms of capitalism, but, um, you know, how, how, how do, how do you in your mind uh, relate to secularism Mm -hmm. and pluralism and, and, um, multiculturalism, um, mm-hmm. you know, because our, our, our founding folk um, put in the Constitution religious liberty, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. which and and that includes no no faith and not just faith, but no faith, and and so that has created a um, a secular culture for us and a um, a pluralistic culture. Um, and, and, and all that then ends up bearing on definitions of justice mm-hmm. uh, and and how that is uh, lived out. Mm-hmm. So in your mind, um, you know, what do you do uh, mm-hmm. as far as uh, relating your own Christian perspective uh, to social justice in a mm-hmm. pluralist and secular society? Yeah, great question. I mean, when I look at the parables of Jesus and the encounters that Jesus had in the world, I don't think he ever compromised on righteousness. Um, I don't think he ever compromised on justice. Um, But when I see that he had direct encounters with people um, in society, that he welcomed them and said, come follow me. You know, he didn't beat them over the head. When he met the woman at the well, you know, in John chapter four, who he knew had many husbands, he didn't... um, impose on her a legal mandate of the Jewish law. And he would have been completely right to do so. I mean, the Jewish law regarding marriage, and she was obviously in violation of it. And so I think in terms of politics and nation and um, biblical law and principles, I personally don't believe that you mandate morality. I don't think that Jesus did that. I think Jesus welcomed people to himself. and that that was not a compromise of, you know, like I said, Jewish law, for example. And I think when we talk about nationalism and we talk about, you know, you were talking about secularism. And um, one of the questions I would ask people who self-identify as Christian is, you know, who is our ultimate allegiance to? I mean, I have a lot of pride, you know, living here in the United States, and I'm a daughter of a veteran and a granddaughter of a veteran. My father actually died because of his exposure to Agent Orange uh, later on in life, but, you know, gave up his life for his country, uh, was perfectly healthy and died of um, lung cancer because of exposure to Agent Orange, which I feel like is the highest sacrifice when it comes to patriotism and nationalism. And yet, I think often in the U.S., the conflation of the United States and our belief in our country and our faith and our belief in Jesus, I think that that's a false conflation that can often be idolatry. And so, you know, is God the God of the United States or is God the God of the world? And did Jesus die to forgive us for our sins? You know, only those who self-identify as American or did Jesus die for the forgiveness of sins? of all who choose to follow him, right? And so I think that the theology behind the questions you're asking is really, really important, that those are important theological questions that we need to really understand um, 
you know, we can be patriots and be followers of Jesus. Uh, I was going to say something very controversial, uh, but I don't think that that means, you know, that we should have the U.S. flag on the altar, for example, uh, which I know is a very controversial issue in a lot of churches. So how does this um, process that you've talked about in the first part of your book um, shape what you're doing now with the uh, World Churches for Peace? Yeah, Churches for Middle East Peace. Yes. Yeah. So I, um, when this book was coming out uh, just about 10 years ago, I was on my first spiritual pilgrimage to the Holy Land. I had dreamt of going to Israel my whole life um, of seeing this place where Jesus lived and breathed and did ministry. And when I was there, I was introduced to uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in a way I mean, I thought I was super smart. I had several master's degrees. I was getting a doctorate. I thought I knew a thing or two about the world. And I saw these signs when I was there that said, free Palestine. And David, I thought Palestine was just a map in the back of the Bible. I knew nothing about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And so that started me on a journey where I ended up doing my PhD in the history of U.S. Christian engagement um, in Israel and in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And now I have the privilege of leading this uh, broadly ecumenical organization It has almost 30 member communions and denominations, broadly ecumenical, um, but it's a Christian organization that's committed to doing peace building in the Middle East. And so um, our advocacy priorities are focused on the sustainability of the church in the Middle East, which is disappearing. I just was in Iraq in November, for example, and was meeting with Christians who uh, had suffered during the ISIS control there. Um, so we work on uh, holistic peace building, humanitarian and economic assistance, and human rights uh, as mechanisms of advocacy and peace building in the Middle East. Okay. Well, that's wonderful. And, thank you. Uh, thank you for your work on that. Um, you know, I have a series separate from this, uh, specifically on peace building. Oh. Uh, so maybe we can have you back. I'd love it talk specifically about that yeah well i am i'm grateful uh for your time today and i thank you for uh, what you've done Mm -hmm. uh and we will hopefully not not only talk about peace building but um some of your other books thank you Uh, i really appreciate the invitation good to be with you david well you are listening to practicing gospel i'm david rayburn you can learn more about dr cannon her work and her books from the Churches for Middle East Peace website, which is at cmep.org, or from her own website, maecannon.com, that's maycannon.com. These resources will be on the blog post for this episode on my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net. The music for this episode comes from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come that is on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and used by permission by the Porter's Gate Work Project. You can purchase the album and learn more about the worship project by going to the website theportersgate.com. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website, 
at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. May the words from my mouth